Welcome to this EHIV Review Podcast. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of EHIV Review. Today's program is a follow-up to our newsletter on engaging people who inject drugs and men who have sex with men in the HIV cascade of care. Our guests today are that issue's authors. Both are from Boston's Healthcare for the Homeless program, where Dr. Jennifer Brody is Director of HIV Services, and Nurse Practitioner Marguerite Beiser is Director of HCV Services. EHIV Review is jointly presented by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. This program is supported by educational grants from Gilead Sciences Incorporated and Merck & Company Incorporated. Learning objectives for this audio program include discuss strategies to improve linkage to care for criminal justice system-involved PWID, that's people who inject drugs, and MSM, men who have sex with men. And our second learning objective, identify opportunities to implement rapid start interventions for new diagnosis HIV infections. Dr. Jennifer Brody and Marguerite Beiser have disclosed that neither has any financial interests or relationships with a commercial entity whose products or services are relevant to the content of the presentation. Both have also indicated that there will be no references to the unlabeled or unapproved uses of any drugs or products in today's discussion. Dr. Brody, Maggie Beiser, thank you for joining us today. Bob, it's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. In your recent newsletter issue, you reviewed the current information about the challenges and benefits of engaging hard-to-reach PWID and MSM in the HIV care cascade. What I'd like to do today is discuss how that information might impact clinical practice. So start us out, if you would please, Maggie Beiser, with a patient case scenario. So this patient is a 26-year-old African-American male who presented one week prior with his HIV-positive male partner for STI testing. The patient engages in anal receptive and insertive intercourse with his partner, who he believes to be undetectable on his antiretrovirals. He reports his last HIV test was about nine months ago and was negative. He recalls recent viral illness about one month ago. At the time, he saw a different provider who recommended HIV testing, but the lab was closed and so testing was not performed. Both he and his partner are homeless and staying between the shelter and motels. They frequent a day drop-in program for HIV-infected individuals and their guests, and his partner is also presenting today to engage in care and relates that he has not been consistently on ART for several months. The results of this patient's HIV test and STI testing show a repeatedly reactive HIV antibody as well as positive testing for rectal gonorrhea and syphilis titer of 1 to 32. He is returning three days later as planned to review his results. So in this first visit, what do you want to accomplish? There's a lot to cover in this first visit. First and foremost, his new HIV diagnosis which should be delivered ideally with support either from behavioral health or an HIV team. And there should hopefully be plenty of time for education. Obviously, he also needs treatment today for gonorrhea and syphilis. And based on the literature reviewed in the newsletter, I would argue that we should be starting antiretroviral therapy today as well. What can you tell us, Maggie, about the benefits and about the possible risks of starting ART on the same day a patient receives the diagnosis? And would that same-day start be appropriate for this patient? Sure. So DHHS guidelines talk specifically about early antiretroviral therapy initiation, and they cite the START and Temprano trials, which have demonstrated the benefits of early initiation, including preserving CD4 count and reducing immune activation and inflammation. Same-day starts have been evaluated in international settings, including South Africa and Haiti. And now we have some literature from San Francisco and Atlanta, the study reviewed in the newsletter, that also show reduced time to viral suppression and equal achievement of viral suppression for same-day start. 
You know, I think as providers, I think we're concerned with overwhelming our patients at the time of such a significant moment in their life. And because they're sort of unknown to us, we're not sure about their capacity to adhere to medications or appointments. But I think the literature presented in the newsletter really supports same-day starts as a good option, particularly because we know that individuals who are undiagnosed or unengaged in care are contributing to about 91% of infant HIV infections annually. So the faster this patient and his partner can be engaged and started on therapy, the better for their health as well as for the benefit to prevent transmission to others. Well, Dr. Brody, let me ask you, what medication regimen would you start these patients on? DHHS has summarized the relevant literature and medication recommendations on their website, aidsinfo.nih.gov, and they comment that regimens that would be appropriate for same-day or rapid initiation of ART before all labs are returned, so before resistant testing is back and before safety assessments such as HLA-B5701 screening is back, would include options such as either boosted Deruvir plus tenofovir and FTC or Zolutegravir plus tenofovir and FTC. While DHHS does not have a specific recommendation on newer agents such as Victagravir, TAF, FTC at this time, I think we can expect that given clinical trial data showing non-inferiority of Victagravir, TAF, FTC to Dolutegravir, TAF, FTC, that we can expect that this would also be an option that we might consider for rapid starts as well. Dr. Brody, this patient's involvement with the medical system It occurred a number of times in the six months prior to him getting his HIV diagnosis. Somebody dropped the ball here, didn't they? Yeah, I think, unfortunately, there were many missed opportunities in this case. This patient did not have regular primary care. It seems like there was no sexual history taken and there was really no counseling around pre-exposure prophylaxis for HIV for this individual. From the case, we hear that he was actually seen by a clinician during a likely acute retroviral syndrome, and testing was still not performed at that time, seemingly due to logistical barriers. But nevertheless, this is an unacceptable miss, I think. He was later seen at an aid service organization where outreach testing was provided, but he neither requested HIV testing in that time, nor was he offered HIV testing because he believed that his partner had an undetectable HIV viral load and was on antiretroviral therapy. As we learned later, unfortunately, that his partner was in fact not well engaged in care, had not consistently been on ART for several months. So despite the fact that we know that sexual history and HIV screening are fundamental parts of routine medical care, this individual was not offered those. And we know also that it's generally recommended that high-risk men who have sex with men, such as the patient in the case that we described, who was also exposed to multiple sexually transmitted infections, should be screened at least you know, every three months for both HIV and sexually transmitted infection. This does require appropriate patient education. It requires availability and support for testing. And it also especially requires additional supports for individuals, such as the patient in the case, with limited means and a chaotic living situation. Well, thank you both for that case and discussion. And we'll return with Dr. Jennifer Brody and nurse practitioner Maggie Beiser in just a moment. Thank you for listening to this EHIV Review Podcast. If you're unfamiliar with our program, we're a combination newsletter and podcast continuing educational series. We're available online without cost or prerequisite. EHIV Review newsletters are published every other month. Each issue focuses on a specific area of importance in the care of patients with HIV and is authored by an expert clinician who reviews the current literature and provides commentary. 
In the month following each newsletter, a case-based podcast discussion, like the one you've been listening to, brings that expert perspective to translating the new information into clinical practice. Continuing education credit for EHIV Review is jointly provided by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. For more information about EHIV Review, please go to our website, ehivreview.org. Welcome back to this EHIV Review Podcast. Our guests are Dr. Jennifer Brody and nurse practitioner Maggie Beiser from Boston's Healthcare for the Homeless program. We've been talking about the clinical aspects of bringing difficult-to-engage PWID and MSM into HIV care. So, Dr. Brody, let's continue this in-the-clinic perspective with another patient scenario. If you would, please, doctor. So the next case that we'd like to share is a case of a 45-year-old homeless Latino man with a history of opiate use disorder, also a history of two opioid-related overdoses, who's now been in remission from his opiate use disorder for about six months. He has a history of frequent incarceration and major depressive disorder. And he's coming to the clinic in an urgent care setting requesting sexually transmitted infection screening because he's had several unprotected sexual encounters in the past six months or so. He's asymptomatic. His STI screening is negative, and a fourth-generation HIV screening test is performed and comes back repeatedly reactive. Confirmatory testing is positive for HIV. His HIV viral load is 8,000 copies per ml, and he reports that an HIV test six months previous was performed while he was still incarcerated was negative. The patient's enrolled in HIV care at the same facility where he received his test, and a warm handoff is provided to the HIV care team where an HIV nurse intake is performed on the same day that he receives his positive HIV test results. He sees an HIV provider within a week, and in the interim, he reports a relapse with opioids. His CD4 count comes back at 380. How do you approach a patient like this? newly diagnosed with HIV, with active opioid use, and a whole complex of other psychosocial needs. Where do you start? So I think a key principle in approaching a patient like this with so many concurrent psychosocial needs and medical needs is to first address his survival needs. This is a gentleman who is homeless, so we need to allow an opportunity for the patient himself to identify his own highest priority needs and so that we are participating in joint agenda setting for the first visit. I think also absolutely critical to address is his opiate disorder. And I think we need to be offering this individual evidence-based medication for opiate disorder, such as buprenorphine. And we need to be offering a same-day start for buprenorphine as a way to link this individual into care. I think given his history of already two prior overdoses with opioids, we must address his opioid overdose risk. We need to think about harm reduction strategies and come up with a safety plan. I think also we need to be thinking about how is this individual doing mentally and emotionally with a new HIV diagnosis, knowing that there's still a tremendous amount of stigma, and we need to be thinking about connecting him to behavioral health care urgently if needed. We also need to be thinking about whether this individual has disclosed his status to anyone as a way to understand how much social support he might have available to him, because lack of social support and non-disclosed status can really be a major barrier to engaging in care. In your opinion, Maggie, is this patient at this time ready to begin HIV therapy? I'm asking that because historically, there have been a lot of concerns about adherence in patients who have active substance use disorder. Integration of substance use disorder treatment, especially buprenorphine-based therapy for opiate use disorder and HIV care is a powerful tool for facilitating readiness for starting antiretroviral therapy. 
It affords a structure for frequent visits and close follow-up. And the OUD is often the root cause of adherence challenges and social instability. So when this is stabilized, we increase the chance of HIV care continuum success in terms of a successful linkage to care, adherence to meds, retention in care, and viral suppression. And that's been demonstrated in a Yale study from 2012 by Springer et al. Okay, so what happened with this patient? This patient was, in fact, started on buprenorphine naloxone at his first visit with an HIV clinician, and he was given a seven-day prescription and then seen subsequently by that clinician in one week. And at that visit, antiretroviral therapy was started. Since then, he's reported full compliance in antiretroviral therapy, as well as engaged in buprenorphine care. Longer-term follow-up for this patient. Dr. Brody, what kinds of barriers and challenges are still going to remain after he's made this initial linkage to care? So this patient, unfortunately, was reincarcerated about a month after receiving his HIV diagnosis. And this experience of cycling in and out of jail and prison is common, unfortunately, among people who inject drugs and who are living with HIV. And many studies, in fact, show that this cycling in and out of prisons and jails has a very negative impact on the HIV care cascade. Studies have shown that there's a dose-response relationship between incarceration events and medication non-adherence. And so we should be thinking about how we can prevent cycling in and out of the prison system to the extent possible. But knowing that this is unfortunately a common experience, we should be anticipating this and planning for it in case it does occur. So it's important to counsel patients about what to do in the case that they are reincarcerated. So things that we can consider include having the patients tell prison or jail staff who their provider is in terms of their HIV care, encouraging patients to have their medication lists available, and ensuring patients have good contact information for their HIV provider and their HIV care team. In this patient's case, in large part because there was good communication between the jail and the community providers, his antiretroviral therapy was continued during his detention. And we learned on follow-up through communication with the provider in, in the incarcerated setting that he quickly became virally suppressed, fortunately. Negatively, or unfortunately, he was detoxed off of his buprenorphine, which is fairly common throughout certainly Massachusetts where we practice and nationwide that FDA-approved treatments for opiate use disorder are not provided as standard of care. Then this puts patients in grave risk for opioid overdose upon release from prison or jail. And this practice of detoxing people off of FDA-approved evidence-based treatment for abuse disorder makes it very hard to convince patients to return to these therapies upon their release because they fear opiate withdrawal if they're incarcerated again. This individual will also face potential lapses in his Medicaid status, and this is dependent on state-by-state legislation. But upon release, he may not have insurance coverage via Medicaid, which can then, of course, limit his access to antiretroviral therapy. It can limit his access to medical care and lead to treatment interruptions, which then, as we know, can lead down the line to potentially expensive emergency room visits and unnecessary hospitalizations. We know also from the literature that pre- and peri-release discharge planning is critical to relinking him to his HIV care team and to resuming antiretroviral therapy and medications for opiate use disorder. We've gotten into an area where the treatment challenges for people living with HIV who also inject drugs get much more complicated, and that's when they get involved with the criminal justice system. What do existing data tell us about that, Dr. Brody? So from existing studies, we know that facilitators of linkage to HIV care include things such as pre-release discharge planning, 
We also know that access to transportation, stable housing, substance use treatment, specifically including buprenorphine and methadone for opiate use disorder, peer navigation, enhanced case management, and especially transitional case management that starts pre-release and continues into the post-release period, all lead to improved rates of linkage to care. And that's well demonstrated in the literature. We know that barriers, conversely, drug use, mental illness, stigma, and lack of social support and unemployment are inhibitors of linkage to prevent effective linkage to care. So this means that there are important opportunities for improvement in most jail and prison systems. We know from a study published in 2014 that fewer than 20% of prisons and jails offer discharge planning services for inmates transitioning to the community. And in a more recent study published in Lancet HIV this year in 2018, found that even though it was effective in linking prisoners with high rates of injection drug use to HIV post-release, transitional case management was only offered to 34% of releasees. Maggie, Dr. Brody? I want to thank you both for today's cases and discussion. Uh, Doctor, I've got one more question for you. Tell us, please, in your expert opinion, which areas of future research are most likely to improve care cascade outcomes for people living with HIV who are MSM and or who inject drugs? Doctor? I think there are several areas for further inquiry. Studies are yet to be done on the impact of provision of medications such as buprenorphine or methadone for opiate disorder during incarcerated periods and in the immediate post-release period on the HIV care continuum outcomes for criminally justice-involved people who inject drugs and MSM. Another area that I think requires further investigation is that we know that provision of housing improves outcomes for homeless people living with HIV-AIDS, but not about how this structural intervention might improve outcomes for vulnerable MSM and people who inject drugs living with HIV-AIDS. So I think that's another area that we need to look at for further investigation. Well, thank you for sharing your insights, Doctor. Let's wrap things up now by reviewing the key takeaway points from our discussion as they apply to our learning objectives. So our first objective strategies to improve linkage to care for PWID and MSM who are involved in the criminal justice system. Dr. Brody? So I think our cases highlight a host of psychosocial and structural challenges that criminal justice-involved people living with HIV-AIDS face when trying to access the HIV care continuum. In our comments, we highlight a range of interventions and strategies that have been shown to ameliorate HIV care cascade barriers for this population. And I think our key takeaways include the critical role of integrated substance use disorder treatment that is embedded in primary care in facilitating linkage to care for people who inject drugs and MSM with substance use disorder. And I cannot underscore enough the importance of HIV providers themselves developing the capacity to prescribe buprenorphine for opiate disorder. We also discussed the important role of pre-discharge planning and traditional case management, as well as the importance of addressing survival needs, such as housing and transportation in the peri-release period. Thank you, Doctor. And our other learning objective, identifying opportunities to implement rapid start interventions for new diagnosis HIV infection. Maggie? So the case reviewed the benefits and considerations of initiating ART on the day of HIV diagnosis. And I think what the evidence shows is that starting on same day shortens the time to viral suppression with equivalent rates of viral suppression. So this is really something that we should be considering and doing. And we reviewed the DHHS recommendations for what to start, and those are namely dolutegravir plus TAF and FTC or boosted darunavir plus TAF and FTC. And as we mentioned, there's not a formal recommendation around bictegravir, TAF, FTC, but given the evidence, we could consider that that's probably also a good option. 
And then I think the other thing is to really be thoughtful about these missed opportunities that are preventing earlier diagnosis and earlier engagement in care, and also opportunities to prevent transmission through offering pre-exposure prophylaxis. So as clinicians, please be considering HIV screening in all visits, really, including taking thorough sexual histories and doing STI screening on a regular basis for high-risk individuals. From Boston's Healthcare for the Homeless program, Nurse Practitioner Maggie Miser, Dr. Jennifer Brody, thank you both for participating in this EHIV Review podcast. Thank you so much for having us. Bob, thanks so much for the opportunity to contribute. For EHIV Review, I'm Bob Busker. To receive CME credit for this activity, please take the post-test at ehivreview.org. This podcast is presented in conjunction with the EHIV Review Newsletter, a peer-reviewed literature review certified for CME-CE credit, available online to clinicians treating patients with HIV. This activity has been developed for primary care physicians, NPs, PAs, nurses, HIV specialists, OBGYNs, infectious disease physicians, and others involved in the care of patients with HIV. This activity has been planned and implemented in accordance with the accreditation requirements and policies of the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, ACCME, through the joint providership of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine is accredited by the ACCME to provide continuing medical education for physicians. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine designates its enduring material for a maximum of 0.5 AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Physicians should only claim the credit commensurate with the extent of their participation in this activity. The Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing is accredited as a provider of continuing nursing education by the American Nurses Credentialing Center's Commission on Accreditation. For nurses, this 0.5 contact hour educational activity is provided by the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Each podcast carries a maximum of 0.5 contact hour. This educational resource is provided without charge, but registration is required. To register, please go to our website, ehivreview.org. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. Use of the names of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing implies review of educational format, design, and approach. Please review the complete prescribing information for specific drugs, combinations of drugs, or use of medical equipment, including indication, contraindications, warnings, and adverse effects before administering therapy to patients. EHIV Review is supported by educational grants from Gilead Sciences Incorporated and Merck & Company Incorporated. This program is copyright with all rights reserved by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine.